All right, so today in theological equipping class, we are going over a somewhat technical uh, issue that I think will be helpful for you, uh, at least we think will be helpful for you, but it is kind of, uh, it is kind of academic, it is a little bit heady, uh, but we're not afraid of those kind of things at, uh, at Parkway. We're going to be going over a topic when it comes to justification. So we've been talking about justification, which is where God declares you to be something that you're not, which is righteous, because Christ is righteous, and when you put your faith in Him, you are in Christ, and so we talked about a history of justification, and then last week Jeff talked about a theology of justification, and today we're going to deal with one of the bigger issues within uh, the modern era when it comes to justification, and this is something that you maybe have never heard of before. So typically if you come, to the, come into this class, we'll talk about, I don't know, the Trinity, and you, hopefully you've heard of the Trinity, or the resurrection, and hopefully you've heard of that. Well, today this might be a, a bit new for you. This is what is called the new perspective on Paul. Uh, it's not that new anymore. It's been going on in theological circles for about 50 years, 60 years or so. Um, the culture has a tendency to be about 20 years behind the academy, meaning universities, and then churches have a tendency to be about 10 years behind the culture. So that's kind of the flow. It kind of goes university, culture, and then church, and so we need to pick up our game and uh, not be so far behind. Uh, but uh, we'll be talking about the new perspective on Paul. Now, it's a bit technical. I would say that about 95% of seminary students that I've met don't understand what this is, but fear not because you guys are much smarter than most seminary students that I've met, and so we will crush it in here today. So, to first make the point on what this is and what we're talking about today, we're going to start with a little Bible quiz. Are you ready? Okay, we're going to take a quiz together. It's a 10-question quiz. You will not be getting a grade, but answering these questions will help you uh, in understanding what we're going to go over. So, let's take this quiz. If you have a pen, you can write it in there, or you can just think it in your mind. I'm not going to take it up. Please don't turn it into me. I'll give you an F if you turn it in regardless, okay? Number one, did the Pharisees think they were saved by works? Not do you think the Pharisees thought they were saved by works. Did the Pharisees actually think that they were saved by works, that they somehow merited God's favor? What do you think? Yes or no? You can jot it down or you can just think it. You can just think it. Okay? Number two, Paul says we are not saved by works. Can you name some examples of works? So when Paul says you're not saved by works, what kind of things is he thinking? So if I said, name four works that Paul says you're not saved by, what would you fill in the blanks for? What are some works, whether you write them down or in your mind, of what Paul means when he says that you're not saved by works? We'll see if you mean the same thing as the Apostle Paul here in just a minute. Number three on our quiz, did Christ die for you as an individual or for the church corporately? Did Christ die for you as an individual or the church corporately? Or maybe even some sort of both answer. You can put whatever you want here. Wink, wink. Okay? Number four in our Bible quiz. What is the book of Galatians primarily about? If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, Galatians is the first book that Paul wrote. It's probably the earliest book in our New Testament. It was actually written before the Gospels were written, although the content in the Gospels happened before that. It's really big, really important for the Apostle Paul. What is the book of Galatians primarily about? What would you tell them? Now, this next one might blow your mind. Are you ready? Did Paul perfectly keep the Mosaic law before his conversion? Because he's going to say a lot of things in Romans that's like, nobody can keep the law. There's none righteous. No, not one. 
But then Philippians 3, 5 through 6, he says this of himself, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Hmm, okay. Is Paul stressing out? Is he really freaked out about his uh, law-keeping before his conversion? Number six, does the phrase, the righteousness of God, refer to a status he gives you, an activity whereby he saves you, or his own personal attribute of being righteous? What do you think? The phrase righteousness of God occurs over and over and over again in the New Testament, especially in places like Romans. Does the phrase the righteousness of God refer to a status he gives you, an activity whereby he saves you, or his own personal attribute of being righteous? What do you think? Hmm. By the way, these questions are meant to be hard and weird and tricky and kind of confusing intentionally. So there's a method to the madness, so bear with me. Bear with me. Number six. No, I already did that. Number seven. If you were preparing a sermon today, so let's say you're preparing a sermon or a lesson today to teach to somebody, which of the following documents would best help you understand predestination in Romans 9? Calvin's commentary on Romans or the Dead Sea Scrolls? Which one do you think? Which would most help you understand predestination in Romans 9? Calvin's commentary on Romans or the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is this, uh, the Essenes were this kind of ascetic group of Jews that lived out in the wilderness, and uh, the copy of their writings that we found are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this next one might freak you out as well. Is justification something that happens when you first become a believer or something that happens on Judgment Day? Might I remind you that Paul says things like this in Romans 2.13. He says that it is the doers of the law who will be justified. He sees that not just as a present reality when you put your faith in Christ, but also something that seems to happen in the future. Two more. Why did Jews keep all the Mosaic regulations in the Old Testament? They didn't. I mean, they failed, but they tried to. Why did they do that? If you didn't, keep, if you didn't generally keep them, would you be condemned? And then the last question on our weird Bible quiz. We'll never do this again, by the way. This is just fun. It just gets the brain, it just gets the brain going. What two people groups does the New Testament most seek to reconcile? Okay? What, new, what two people groups does the New Testament most seek to reconcile? Now, let me say something about this. Uh, obviously, racism, actual racism, to think that somebody is less valuable because of their ethnicity or something is sin. Okay? Racism is evil because it tries to keep Abraham's seed from being a blessing to all nations. But keep in mind that that is a secondary implication. That's not the primary thing the New Testament's dealing with when it's trying to, to reconcile these two groups. The answer to number 10, by the way, is Jew and Gentile. The issue there has primarily to do with those who are in covenant with God, the Jews, and how Gentiles get into that covenant, not how certain Gentile groups are reconciled with each other. Now, that's just to jog your memory, so hang on to those answers if you've got them, because uh, we're going to reference back to several of these as we go through the lesson. It's just to uh, uh, get your mind going with how you think about this. Here's what we're doing today. Within the last 50 or 60 years or so, uh, there is a big movement and when it comes to New Testament studies, and it's called the New Perspective on Paul. And so we want you to know what this issue is. We want you to be equipped with it. Essentially, the movement says some things that are really helpful and some things that are unhelpful. The movement primarily is right, I actually think, but there are some glaring flaws in it that we will, uh, we will take a look at. But here's what it is. Here's what the new perspective is. The new perspective is a critique of the traditional Protestant understanding of Paul's theology in light of historical research into the beliefs of first century Judaism. Okay? 
Meaning, when you read the New Testament, you have a tendency to read it the way Luther did. Why? Because you're a Reformed Protestant, a Reformed Baptist. What the New Perspective is going to say is, wait a second, maybe you're reading the Bible through 16th century Lutheran eyes instead of first century Jewish Christian eyes. Maybe you're reading too much of your culture and your theology back onto the text. What did Jews in the first century actually believe? Maybe it's helpful to know what the Dead Sea Scroll says when it comes to election and these kind of things if you're trying to figure out what Paul means by election because those would have been his contemporaries. He would be, he's not a 21st century American. He's a first century Jewish Christian, okay? So let's recap some different views of justification, okay, just from uh, last time. So there's going to be basically three that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Catholic view, we're going to talk about the Protestant view, and we're going to talk about this new perspective view. So the first of all, the Catholic view of justification is that God makes, not declares, God makes people righteous by grace, but this grace is not obtained by faith alone, but by sacraments, acts of charity, and faithfully living as a Catholic. Jeff talked about this last week. If you're Roman Catholic, you are not justified all at once, like in Protestantism. It's a process, okay? It's imparted righteousness. It's the idea that God actually makes you more and more and more justified as time goes on through things like the sacraments and works of charity and being a good Catholic, okay? The Protestant view, in contrast to that, is that God declares you to be righteous. God declares people righteous by grace, and that very grace is received by faith alone, okay? So here's a good way to think of it. If you're Catholic, it's kind of like this. When you enroll in school, you take classes, and you take classes, and you take classes, and then at the end, you get your degree. That's Roman Catholicism, okay? And Protestantism, when you first come to faith, you get your degree. Jesus has been the best student who ever lived, and you are seen as having his merits, okay? The first day you enroll in school, you get a PhD. And then classes begin the very next day, and they last until you die. You've already gotten the education. You're already a PhD. You already have all the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining. But you actually then start to become what God's already declared you to be, which is righteous, okay? Now, what the new perspective view is going to do is it's going to critique both of these. It's going to say both of these are centered on a debate going on in the Middle Ages and not what Jews actually thought in the first century, okay? So let's talk a little bit about what Luther believed about justification. Luther believed that the Jews of the first century were trying to earn their salvation by works just like the Roman Catholics of his day. So when Luther, Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Reformation, is reading Romans and he comes across the Jews, he kind of puts himself into the shoes of Paul. So Luther becomes like Paul. The Jews are seen as like these semi-Pelagian medieval Roman Catholics. And so Luther has a tendency to read all of Romans and read all of his background and his history and his thoughts back onto the text, okay? That's why I had this question of whether or not Pharisees thought they were saved by works. By the way, they didn't. If that blows your mind, that shows how influenced you are within Protestantism and not actually saying, what does the text itself say, okay? Now, because Luther read the Bible that way, most New Testament scholarship after Luther was done by German scholars, i.e. Lutheran scholars, okay, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so Luther's view became the dominant view. So just as a summary, because I know this is technical and boring, there'll be jokes along the way. You just bear with me. Catholic view, God makes you righteous over time. Protestant view, God declares you to be righteous in Christ instantly, just upon the basis of faith and repentance in Christ. What the New Perspective guys will say is, okay, there's elements of truth to both of those, but both of those are asking the wrong question. Did Jews in the first century think that they earned salvation? Or is that kind of a Lutheran notion? What did Jews think about why they kept the law? All right? 
is Paul really concerned and nervous that he's not keeping all of God's rules and that God is going to damn him? No, actually, he seems to say that he was crushing it. He seems to say that he was somewhat blameless in keeping it. So there's something that's gone off here. So here's a summary so far. So here's the issue. If you've not understood anything I've said, here's all you have to know thus far. Have we, as Protestants, misunderstood books like Romans and Galatians because we haven't considered what Jews in Paul's day actually thought about these issues, okay? You need to remember, we at Parkway are Protestants. We are Baptist, which is a type of Protestant. We are Reformed Protestants, okay? We are confessional Protestants, but you have to understand this. Protestantism is a reactionary movement. It is a reaction to medieval Roman Catholicism. Protestantism doesn't just start in a vacuum and just say, what does the Bible say? It is a swinging of the pendulum against the Roman Catholicism that's going on in Luther's day, which had drifted into uh, what he would say would be Pelagianism, okay? So keep that in mind. Now, get ready for the most boring part of the lesson, and then we'll get into some practical things, okay? Who are the major players in this movement? You don't need to remember all these names. We're just giving them to you because that's what we do here. We give you not, we, we, never give, we never take away something you need to know, but we often give you more than you need to know. So you don't have to remember all these names. Uh, there are three of them that you'll need to remember. So let me go through a few, and then I'll tell you the ones you need to remember. So first of all, the new perspective is not that new. It actually begins at the very end of the 1800s. Guys like Claude Montefiore, George Foote Moore, and William Davies basically had said, they're biblical scholars, and they basically said, hey, I think we've missed something. I think we're reading our views back onto the biblical text. Let's see what Jews around the time of Paul thought. That was followed up by a Harvard professor named Christer Stindahl. Does that sound German to you? It does, okay? It does. He's probably some sort of mad scientist. Christer Stindahl in 1963 wrote a uh, very famous article called the, uh, uh, the, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West, okay? Here's what he argued in that article. We as Westerners, as Americans, have a tendency to read the New Testament very individualistically, Right? We come to it and we say, I'm condemned, I'm scared that I'm going to go to hell, what does this mean for me, and how can I be personally saved, and how can I have my own personal Jesus? And he said, what you do when you do that is you're misreading the New Testament, okay? People outside of Western cultures have a tendency to be more communitarian. They have a tendency to see themselves more as a group, not just as individuals. So that was something that he did, okay? Now, you don't need to remember those names. The next three names you need to remember. So these are the biggest three proponents of this movement, okay? The first is a guy named E.P. Sanders, okay? He's really the guy that kicked off the movement, E.P. Sanders, okay? He published a book in 1977 called Paul and Palestinian Judaism, in which he argued that Second Temple Judaism, that's just a fancy phrase to mean Judaism after the Second Temple is being built, right, after they've returned from exile, that Second Temple Judaism had been misunderstood. Jews in the Second Temple period did not believe that they earned their salvation by doing good works. In fact, Jews were already saved before the giving of the Mosaic Law. Following the law wasn't about getting in, it was about staying in. Sanders called this idea covenantal nomism, that one followed the law, the Greek word there is namos, because they were the people of God, not to become the people of God. What does that mean? Okay. E.P. Sanders is, uh, I believe, an atheist, actually, uh, though he studies Jewish studies, and he's a retired Duke professor. Uh, and he is brilliant, and he is a ferocious debater, okay? So he's actually said in a debate, he stopped somebody, and he said, have you read all of the Targums in the original Aramaic? Because unless you have, I don't think you're qualified to make that statement. That's the kind of stuff he says, okay? What he is saying is this. He is saying, we have misunderstood the Judaism of Paul's day. We have a tendency to think that the Jews were legalistic, 
right? That Jews were trying to earn their salvation. What Sanders says in his book is he says that is a misunderstanding. He says, listen, Jews never believed they were saved by works. God delivered them out of Egypt before they even had the law. God already married them and adopted them before the giving of the law. Salvation was already theirs before the giving of the law. So they can't be trying to earn God's favor. They already have it. You're born into covenant if you're a Jew in the Old Testament. You're circumcised as a mark of the covenant. So what Sanders said is that the reason Jews followed the law was not to get in, not to be right with God, but rather to stay in, okay? I'll give you an example. I'm married to my wife, okay? I'm already married. I'm already in, okay? I don't not cheat on her to be married. I'm already married. I don't cheat on her to stay married. I don't want her leaving me. I don't want her doing those kind of things, okay? I'm already in covenant. We already have a relationship. And my job of following these rules is basically not to mess it up, but not to earn it, not to get into covenant with God, okay? That's what, uh, that's what Sanders pushed, okay? And this was a uh, bombshell uh, in theological studies because there was such a tendency, and maybe you have this tendency, when you read the New Testament, you assume that the Pharisees and all these kind of people are trying to earn their salvation, like they're trying to put God in their moral debt as if he owes them salvation, The next guy is a guy named James Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, also a retired professor. He taught at the University of Durham, not uh, North Carolina. That's uh, over in England. It actually was for a time the best theology school in the world, Uh, and he led the religious studies department. He's the one that coined the phrase new perspective in 1982. Now, here's what he's going to say, okay? I'm not going to just read the notes. I'll, I'll say it this way. What Dunn said was, we've misunderstood what works and works of the law mean. Okay. So in the question I asked you, I said, Paul says we're not saved by works. Name some works that we're not saved by. Circumcision. That's a good one. I'm going to put that one over here on this hand. What else? Following the Ten Commandments. I'll put that over here for more rules. Sacrifices. What else? Come on, there's so many things that we're not saved by. You, uh, pizza. Okay. Uh, there's so many things that doesn't save us. Okay. Here's what, here's what Dunn's trying to do. Okay. When we have a tendency to think that you're not saved by works, we think of works as good moral deeds, right? You're not saved by reading your Bible, by church attendance, by baptism, by helping little old ladies across the street, by, we're not, that, that's what we think of by works. What he says is that's not typically what Paul means when he says works of the law. In Greek, it's ergonomu, works of the law. When Paul talks about works of the law not saving you, he mentions Jewish works. He mentions these things that separate Jew from Gentile. So works of the law to Paul are not things like helping little old ladies across the street and making sure you don't curse or get drunk. Works of the law for the Apostle Paul, he'd say, are things like circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping, these things specifically that separated Jew from Gentile. For Dunn, the problem is primarily not how does a, a sinner find a gracious God. For Dunn, the issue is how do Gentiles get into a Jewish faith without having to become Jewish? Dunn would say the primary issue here is not a wrathful God. The primary issue is ethnocentrism. It's racism, that the Jews are just wanting to be over here and keep God to themselves, despite the fact that the gospel wants Abraham's seed to be a blessing to all nations, okay? That's what Dunn would say. Next, and this is the last one, you need to know this guy too. 
Nicholas Thomas Wright, N.T. Wright, okay? Just so you know, N.T. Wright has uh, five degrees from Oxford, including two doctorates. He is the top New Testament scholar in the world right now. He has his own version of the New Testament, okay? So when you're translating your own Bible, you've arrived, okay? N.T. Wright is the one who uh, made the new perspective accessible to a lay audience, and he promoted the, the, that the idea for Paul. Justification is not so much about imputed righteousness, that's what we typically talk about, that I go as a sinner to being seen as a saint just by faith in Christ. It's not primarily about that for right. He would say justification is not so much about that, that it's rather about God declaring who is in covenant with him. It's about in-groups and out-groups. The Jews are an in-group, the Gentiles are an out-group, and that's a problem because God wants to save people by faith, not by Jewish law-keeping and these kind of things. And so that's where you get N.T. right Now, That's complicated and technical, so I've got a lot of clarification coming. So these next five points will be really helpful if you're like, why did I get up today? Other times these lessons are encouraging and they're helpful and we talk about how much God loves you and today he's using German words and these kind of things. Stay with us, okay? Stay with us. New perspective on justification. Let me give you a contrast to the way that typically Protestants view things, you and I, versus what the new perspective is saying, okay? Number one. Luther claimed that the Jews were legalistic. What do we mean by legalistic? It means trying to earn their salvation by doing good moral deeds. The new perspective, though, claims that Jews in the first century did not believe that you could merit your salvation by doing good moral deeds. Okay? Number two, Luther had a tendency to treat works, the Mosaic law, and Judaism as bad. The new perspective believes that Paul is not against works, the Mosaic law, or Judaism, but only against their abuses, like when they're being used to try to keep Gentiles out of the covenant, okay? We have a tendency to think of the law as bad. In fact, Luther even divided the entire Bible into two categories. One he called law, which is anything you have to do. The other, which he called gospel, which is anything that God does. That's not the way the Bible uses those terms, gospel and law, but that's what Luther did. So we have a tendency to think that the law is bad, that Judaism is bad, that the Old Testament is bad, but it's not. It's good. It's righteous. It's God's word. It's perfect. It's only bad when you misuse it, when you try to earn righteousness today through following the Old Testament, or uh, you try to use it to keep out certain groups, which is what Jews are doing in the time of Paul. Number three, Luther believed justification by faith was about how an individual sinner found peace with God. The new perspective, though, believes that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith is primarily a statement about ethnic inclusion into the people of God. So to say it this way, Luther's answering this question, how can I be saved? Paul's asking, though, this question, how can Gentiles get into a Jewish faith? Okay? One deals with uh, righteousness, being damned by God, needing to be saved. The other one deals with ethnocentric issues, with racial issues, which how do I get Jew and Gentile? How do I tear down this dividing wall of hostility so that there's only one man in Christ? Okay. Number four, Luther eventually came to believe that the phrase, the righteousness of God, refers to a status of righteous that God grants people who have faith in Christ. The new perspective, though, believes that Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God, refers to God's own personal attribute of covenant faithfulness to save. What does that mean? Throughout the book of Romans, you see this phrase, righteousness of God, righteousness of God, righteousness of God. You see it like, I don't know, a hundred billion times, okay? Typically, when we think of righteousness of God, we have a tendency to think of this status that God grants us. When you repent and trust in Christ, you're given the status of righteous. By the way, that's true. Just to put my cards on the table, I'm a Protestant. Uh, I couldn't teach here if I was not, though I think that the New Perspective does say, most of what they say I think is right. They, they're off on a, a few things. But what the, the New Perspective is going to say here is that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is not talking about you and righteousness you receive, okay? 
N.T. Wright mockingly says that uh, righteousness is not like a gas that floats across the room and can be transferred from one person to another. Instead, righteousness is about something that God is. The righteousness of God is God's own righteousness. God has promised to save people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, so the righteousness of God is about God. It's not about you. It's not about you uh, being made right in God's sight or something. That's not the primary focus. It's the fact that God wants to save Jew and Gentile. He wants to reconcile these two different groups, okay? And then lastly, Luther had a tendency to view works of the law as any good deed you did. He even erroneously divided the whole Bible into what he called law, something you do versus gospel, something God did for you, despite the fact the Apostle Paul doesn't use the terms that way. The new perspective sees the phrase works of the law as referring to Jewish works of the Old Testament. Mosaic law, not to generic good deeds that we do. So works of the law are things like not eating pork, circumcision, keeping holy days, specifically Jewish works, and not about generic good deeds Christians do, like going to church, reading the Bible, not getting drunk, etc. Okay? So just to summarize, where are we so far? If you are a Christian today, you are typically either Catholic or Protestant? If you're Catholic, you're influenced by the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. You're you're influenced by what the Council of Trent decided you should think about justification. If you're Protestant, you have a tendency to just read the Bible through Lutheran eyes. You have a tendency just to read it through Reformed eyes. What the new perspective is trying to do is to say neither of those are wholly right. Let's ask what would it look like to read the New Testament from the contemporaries of Paul? What does it look like to understand these phrases by looking at documents from the first century that Jews wrote so that we understand what they're thinking? It's a historical critique of two theological camps, if you want to say it that way, okay? Let's talk about what is right about the new perspective, and then we will talk about what is wrong about the new perspective. You ready? Number one, what is right about the new perspective? By the way, you can't wholly reject it or wholly accept it, I think. I think you have to hold a mediating position. Most movements that people will bring to you There's usually an element of truth in them, and then there's some things you have to reject. So what you need to do, it's like eating ribs. You eat the meat, but you leave the bones, okay? That's what you need to do as we partake of the uh, the new perspective. Uh, The late R.C. Sproul said, and I quote, I can learn something from anyone, even the devil, if nothing else, but how to be crafty, okay? So we'll take what's good and we'll leave what's bad. Here's some things that are good about the new perspective, okay? Number one. It does a better job of understanding the New Testament in its original Jewish setting. When you read a phrase in Romans and you think, what does Paul mean by that phrase? Well, to know what Paul means by that phrase, it's helpful to look at where that phrase is used in other Jewish literature from the first century. Because though Paul can use it in new ways, typically that should be your starting point. How is this word or phrase or idea used 2,000 years ago? Number two, it better understands the Jew-Gentile division going on in much of Paul's writing. So as we've been teaching through Romans, and we're finishing up uh, Romans 9 today in our uh, sermon, as we've been going through Romans, we have had to over and over and over again talk about Jew and Gentile. It's all over the place. So if you're like, what is the deal with Jew and Gentile? I don't care. That's because Paul is dealing with a slightly different audience than us today. And so that is the big division in the early church. How do In the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, Okay? and you were not Jewish, you could. Think of figures like Rahab or Ruth, these Gentiles that want to worship God. But you had to become Jewish. So would God save people outside of Israel? Absolutely. But once they got saved, then guess what they had to do? If they were male, they had to be circumcised. If they're male or female, they have to follow the Mosaic law. They have to worship at the temple. They have to uh, uh, offer sacrifices. They have to do all these kind of things. And so uh, you have to keep in mind that, yes, you could be saved as a Gentile in the Old Testament, but you immediately had to become Jewish. You with me? 
What Paul is saying and why Paul is so radical is he is saying the way that you worship the God of Israel is not by becoming Jewish. It's simply by having faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, the thing that marked you out as the people of God were these things like circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping, these things that made you look weird, that made you look a little bit distinct from the other nations. What Paul says, though, is the thing that marks you out as a follower of God is faith in Christ. That is the covenantal identity marker, okay? That's his claim. Number three, it rightly sees that the Jews believed and that the Old Testament teaches that they were saved by grace. Now, this is huge. We have a tendency when we think of our Old and New Testament to make two really big errors, okay? First of all, we think the God of the Old Testament is mean and bad, and the God of the New Testament is nice and kind. Same God, okay? That God, the Trinitarian one God of the universe, is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you see wrath and mercy in both. You see God's wrath in the Old Testament, for example, when he's killing the Canaanites, but you also see his tremendous mercy in redeeming a people out of Egypt and pursuing them back, though they've been unfaithful, and you have books like Hosea, where God is seen as this uh, husband that woos back his adulterous wife. And you have the same thing in the New Testament. You see Jesus, on one hand, playing with kids, helping women who cry at his feet, but then he comes back in Revelation and just kills everybody, all right? And the blood is up to the horse's bridles. So you see the same God who has wrath and love in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, here's another error we make in thinking about the Old and the New Testament. We have a tendency to think that people in the Old Testament were really saved by works, but now in the New Testament, we're just saved by faith. People have always been saved by faith. That's Paul's point by appealing to Abraham. He says that Abraham was justified. He was reckoned by God as righteous before circumcision, before he did these other things, okay? How were people in the Old Testament saved? The same way that people are in the New Testament, by repentance and faith in the one true God. In the Old Testament, you had faith in God and you knew he would one day send a Messiah. In the New Testament, you have faith in God and you know he has sent a Messiah and will send him back again at the second coming. But either way, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're basically saved the same way through repentance and faith in the one true God of Israel who is a God who sends a Messiah, okay? Who atones for your sins, who gives mercy to you because you cannot keep his rules. I think the New Testament or the uh, New Perspective is right there, emphasizing, was it true that some, uh, some Jews acted legalistically? Yes, but is that actually what the Bible teaches when it comes to salvation of how you're saved? No, okay? Number four, the New Perspective It rightly sees that the law is not bad. The law is good. We are bad, and the law is therefore bad news for us because we can't keep it. Romans 7, 12 through 14, this is Paul. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So here's the example that Jeff gave when we talked through this, which I thought was really helpful. Imagine that you have a super nice, fancy car, okay? It's a Ferrari. It's a Lamborghini. It's a smart car. It's something really nice, okay? Really nice. It's, uh, and it's fast. There's nothing wrong with the car. It's shiny. The engine works well. Uh, you know, everything's great with the car, but you're absolutely plastered. You're absolutely, you know, blackout drunk. Is that car that's really good normally good news for you when you're behind the wheel? No, if anything, it uses its speed to kill you faster. Okay. That's kind of what Paul's going to say about the Old Testament Mosaic law. The Old Testament law is perfect. 
It's like a Ferrari, but we, because of sin, are just messed up. So when we get behind the wheel of the law and God's like, don't lust, we're like, and we just slam into a ditch, okay? And so, but you need to know the law is not bad. There's a tendency for us sometimes to think that the law is bad or that Judaism is bad or something like that. That's not how the Bible portrays it. It's bad when it's used improperly. It's bad when it's used incorrectly, okay? Two more things where I think the new perspective is dead on. The phrase, the righteousness of God, in Greek it's dikaiosune theo, you don't need to know that, but the phrase, the righteousness of God, indeed refers to God's own personal quality of being faithful to keep the covenant at several places in Paul's letter. letters. The phrase, righteousness of God, occurs a lot in the New Testament, and here's simply what you need to know. It can mean different things in different contexts. Sometimes it's talking about God's activity to save us. Sometimes it's just talking about the fact that God is righteous, that he is faithful. It's his own attribute. In the same way that he's holy or invisible or omnipresent, he's also righteous. Other times, though, it refers to a status that he gives believers who put their faith in Christ. But the word doesn't just have one meaning. When you read Luther, he has a tendency to act as though the righteousness of God is just about the status we have instead of realizing that it can also be several different things. Okay? And then number six. It rightly sees that the phrase works of the law, ergonomu is what it is in Greek, refers to Jewish rules from the Old Testament and not to generic good deeds people try to do today, okay? So look, when Paul says you're not saved by works of the law, listen to the kind of things he mentions. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, okay? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So notice, Paul here says that works of the law are these Jewish works. They're these Mosaic works. They're these things that have to do with the Old Testament. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, there's the phrase again, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, notice it's Mosaic law, comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28-30, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, you'd expect him to say, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, so you can't earn it by going to church on Sunday, and you can't earn it by, you know, uh, not watching rated R movies, and you can't earn it by, uh, you know, evangelizing your neighbor. But here's what he says. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Notice, when Paul talks about works of the law, he talks about Jew-Gentile stuff. He talks about Old Testament mosaic stuff. He doesn't just talk about generic good deeds that you do, okay? Now, what is wrong with the new perspective? Let's talk about some things where they uh, err, where they are off. The new perspective is not so much wrong, by the way, in what it affirms. It's wrong in what it denies, Okay? So some of the things that it says are right, but then it turns around and says, and not how you used to think of it. Ugh, that's where they get into trouble. So let me give you some places where I think that they're wrong. Number one, it assumes that all Jews believed the same thing about salvation. Though we know Judaism in the first century was very diverse, the new perspective has a tendency to make sweeping generalizations. Okay? So what they will say is this, Paul must be meaning this because that's what Jews in the first century believed. That's a pretty broad category. If I were to say to you, do you consider yourself an American Christian? How would you answer that? You'd say, well, I'm an American and I'm a Christian, but I want to qualify that because sometimes when people think American Christian, they think weird things, they think this, whatever. You would want to say, if I say this person's a Christian in America, that can mean all kinds of stuff, right? The same thing is true in the first century. You can't just say all Jews believe this. All Jews didn't believe that. Judaism in the first century was very fragmented, as Christianity is today, okay, throughout the world. And so uh, it it has a tendency to make sweeping generalizations. Number two, though it is true that technically 
Jews were saved by grace, there was what we consider to be actual legalism going on in Judaism at the time of Jesus, okay? So, does the Old Testament teach that you're saved by works? No, it teaches you're saved by grace. Does the New Testament teach you're saved by works? No, it teaches you're saved by grace. But we as sinful humans always have a tendency to try to earn our own righteousness. It's part of our sin. Part of our sin is that we hate God so much that we want to save ourselves. We want to be like God, which is the original sin of man in the Garden of Eden. You don't get to do that. God gets to be God. You get to be a human made of the dirt. That's your role, okay? And so this is a universal human thing. We want to justify ourselves. Think of the story that Jesus tells of the, uh, the religious leader who's in the temple, and, or, and here's what he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these losers over here. I fast three times a week, and I tie the tenth of all that I have. Me, 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 me. I'm the best. And Jesus tells the story of a sinner who comes in and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that it's that man who goes home to his house justified, not the other. So notice, though there is this Jew-Gentile separation, there's actual legalism going on in the first century. There is this idea that I am great and God likes me because I'm crushing it, okay? Number three, Paul's condemnation of trying to keep the Mosaic law is not just about covenant identity markers, these things that separate Jew and Gentile, but rather about trusting things other than Christ alone, okay? For example, when Paul condemns the Jews in Romans 2, it is not mainly because they're being ethnocentric, although that's certainly there, but because they fail to keep the moral aspects of the Mosaic law. So whereas the the new perspective would say Paul's main thing is ethnocentrism, yes, he does deal with ethnocentrism, but he also has to deal with the fact that people just want to justify themselves, that they want to go to things other than Christ to be saved. Romans 2.12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, If you're trying to go to something other than Christ to be saved, you miss it. You're condemned, okay? That's what Paul's going to say. Number four, the new perspective focuses too narrowly on salvation, just being about larger groups. That's why I asked the question in our quiz of whether or not Jesus died for you as an individual or for the church corporately. The answer is both, okay? There are several places where salvation is not merely about large groups, but about individuals. Romans 3, Romans 4, Titus 3, Ephesians 2, Romans 10, etc. Groups are made up of individuals, okay? So what they'll say is this thing is not so much about how you as an individual can personally be saved. It's about these big groups of who's in and who's out and who God is saving. Here's the response to that. One, biblically, there are passages that talk about salvation of individuals. But two, groups are made up of individuals, okay? There's no such thing as a group of people without people, okay? So you can never get away from that individual thing even when you're talking about groups. Galatians 2.20, notice how uh, personal this is. I have been crucified with Christ personally. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the uh, Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice how intensely personal salvation is in the Bible as well. So the answer is both. Did Jesus die for the church? Yes, that's his bride. But he also died for you if you're part of the church. They go together. You can't separate the individuals and the uh, corporate identity in the New Testament. Number five, another phrase, that, another place I think where they're off. The phrase, the righteousness of God, refers to a lot of things. In some contexts, it is a status he gives you, like Luther thought. In others, it is his own quality of righteousness. In others, it's his righteous activity to save. There is not just one meaning. So whereas Luther had a tendency to think God's righteousness was just about a status he gives us, the new perspective has a tendency to think that God's righteousness is just about God's own personal covenant faithfulness. The answer really is that the, the, the words change meaning depending on the context. Does everybody understand that words don't just have one meaning? 
This is sometimes what I'll be arguing with somebody and they'll like appeal to a dictionary definition of a word as if Webster is God and determines all meanings. One, that's not how a dictionary works. A dictionary doesn't tell you what the word means. It tells you what society has already determined the word means. A dictionary is just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. But two, words change their meaning slightly in different contexts, okay? We've used this example. Your nose can run. You can go for a run. You can run for office. You can't say, well, running for office means that to take two legs and move them quickly in front of each other. That's not how words work, okay? A dictionary gives you a range of possible meanings. The, the meaning of a word or a phrase, though, is determined by how it's used in a sentence. It's determined by context, okay? Next. By the way, this is probably the most technical lesson we've ever done in here or probably will ever do. So you need to know this kind of, but I'm sorry. Let's keep going. Number six. The new perspective assumes that Paul agrees with the Judaism of his day, though he actually disagrees with it at several points. So what they'll say is, to best understand Paul, we have to see what other Jews believed. The problem with that is that Paul has been changed by Christ, and so his views on certain theological issues have changed dramatically. So let me ask you this question. Does the Apostle Paul believe, for example, that Abraham was justified by faith alone or by doing stuff? Which one? Faith alone. He's very clear on that. Go read Romans 4. Or listen to our uh, series in Romans 4, okay? But listen to how the Jews in Paul's day thought that Abraham was justified. Sirach. I know a lot of you guys have done good devotions out of Sirach. Uh, this is not in the Bible. This is a uh, Jewish historical book in the Catholic Apocrypha, uh, but it's not uh, Scripture. But I'm, I'm not reading it to say it's Scripture. I'm just reading it to say it helps you understand what Jews believed in the first century. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. He certified uh, the covenant uh, in his flesh, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore, the Lord uh, assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars and give them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul's going to say Abraham's a sinner and he's justified by faith before he does circumcision. But Jewish tradition said Abraham is like the Yoda of the Jews. He is like SEAL Team 6 Judaism. He is the best, all right? He's the best. Jubilees, 23.10. For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life, okay? Jubilees 24.11. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thy father, meaning Abraham, obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my laws and my ordinances and my covenant and now obey my voice and dwell in the land. Part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what's called CD or the Damascus document, 3.2. Abraham was accounted a friend of God because he kept the commandments of God and did not choose his own will. Prayer of Manasseh 8, therefore, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner, okay? So Jews basically thought that Abraham was the man, okay? He was sinless. He was perfect. He followed all of God's rules. Neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob ever sinned. That's why God chose them. They are crushing it. Paul says that is the absolute opposite of what happened. First of all, go read the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They do not keep God's law perfectly. But two, his whole point is that God selects Abraham. God justifies Abraham by faith. He reckons Abraham's faith is righteous. And therefore, Abraham does circumcision and, and does all these obedient things. Okay? So notice, you can't just say, here's what Jews believed in the first century, so therefore Paul believed it. No, Paul disagrees with them in some places. Okay? 
Two more things. The movement has an allergy to speaking of justification in forensic terms. Yes, it's true that justification is also something that's said to happen to you in the final judgment, but that's, we're using the word again, justification, differently than we are when we talk about initial salvation. Okay? Yes, it's true that justification is also something that happens at the final judgment and your works evidence your faith, but the reformers already held that. The new perspective is uncomfortable saying the same thing that Paul says, which is that there is a fiat moment in which you're forgiven, meaning an instant moment, a fiat moment when you receive the Spirit, a fiat moment when you're reckoned as being righteous. Thus, some have even accused the new perspective of being Catholic in its view of justification at best and Pelagian in its view of justification at worst. So at best, they'll say it's similar to Roman Catholicism, okay, where you're saved by grace, but you get the grace through faith plus stuff. At worst, some have said that the new perspective is borderline Pelagian, that is actually saying that somehow you put God in your debt, okay? which is uh, unchristian. And then number eight, though the phrase works of the law, usually and maybe even exclusively, I've looked at every occurrence of the phrase works of the law in the New Testament, and uh, it seems to exclusively refer to Jewish works, refers to Jewish Mosaic works. It is also true that we are not saved by any of our good deeds. In fact, when just the word works is used, erga, it shows that Paul believed that we could not be saved by our own efforts. This means that it is true that people today are not saved by going to church, helping little old ladies cross the street, reading their Bibles, etc. Okay? So what the new perspective would say is this. Paul says you're not saved by Jewish stuff. He's not concerned with your personal righteousness. The problem is, is that there are several places in the New Testament where the Bible's going to say you're not saved by any of your own doing. So even if you're a Gentile, not following the Mosaic law, but you're trying to find your righteousness before God by your, your checklist of do's and don'ts, your being a good person, your these kind of things, that you still miss the boat. Look at these passages, Ephesians 2. Ta- tell me if these are talking about Jewish works or any deeds you might do to try to earn God's favor. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Notice that's not talking about mosaic works. It's saying you can't do anything. It's a gift. It's free. It's received by faith. Even James Dunn, one of these big proponents of the new perspective, says that in Ephesians 2, Paul is just talking about how you can't be saved by your own efforts. But then he goes to say that's why Paul didn't write Ephesians. Okay? Titus 3.5. Look at this one. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, okay? So notice that God saved us. It contrasts here things we could do with what God has done. And it's saying we can't earn our salvation. We're given salvation through the Holy Spirit, okay? Romans 4, 2 through 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works. Now this isn't just Mosaic law. This is saying does anything to try to earn God's favor. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay? So to summarize, we want you to be aware of a movement known as the New Perspective on Paul which basically tries to say Protestants have missed it. We have to understand what's going on in the first century to really understand Paul, okay? Is this movement good or bad? The answer is yes. Part of what they say is right. We do need to understand what contemporaries of writers of the New Testament thought to understand the New Testament. That's true. We do need to uh, know that the bigger issue going on in the New Testament is this Jew-Gentile division. We have a tendency not to talk about that. We do need to know that when Paul talks about works of the law, he primarily, if not exclusively, means Mosaic law, 
mosaic works, circumcision, food loss, these things that separated Israel from the other nations. But the problem with the new perspective is what it denies. It starts to play down those other elements, which are also in the New Testament. Paul does teach that you're not saved by anything you do, only by Christ. Whether you're going to a Mosaic law or a man-made Baptist law that you grew up with, neither of those will save you, only Christ, okay? Uh, And so uh, they also need to realize that Christ dies for individuals, not just corporate bodies, that the issue in the Bible is not just how Jew and Gentile can be reconciled, but also how individuals can find peace with God despite the fact that we've rebelled against Him. And so it's kind of a both-and, okay? It's kind of a both-and. It's not a movement that's entirely bad, nor is it a movement that's entirely good. I think about 90% of what it says is probably right, but that other 10% is a pretty, uh, pretty dangerous area when you start getting into mixing your works with Christ's for salvation. So, Jeff, come on up and we'll do some Q&A. We'll do a little dance to keep everybody awake that we've worked on all week, choreography. So be, be prepared for that. Questions, thoughts on justification, new perspective stuff. What are we doing next week is the Q&A? Next week, we are having an entire class of Q&A, but we're not going to ask questions like we typically do at the end of the class. You have to email in your questions. And so we're going to sit up here on stools like Dr. Phil. It's going to be the best, okay? So come next week for that. Jeffrey or people, questions, and we will answer.